Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Roxanne Escobolis, the editor of The World Today. That's the international affairs magazine from Chatham House. And I'm standing in for Bronwyn Maddox, who'll be back next week. But this week, we're discussing the Global AI Safety Summit that's taken place over the past couple of days here in the UK. We've seen China join the US and the EU in agreeing to cooperate over managing the risks posed by emerging AI technology. We've also seen the appearance of Elon Musk, who sprinkled some stardust over the proceedings. And King Charles even chipped in, calling for unity and urgency in responding to the threats posed by AI. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak first announced the summit on a visit to Washington last June. The result has been the Bletchley Declaration, an agreement between 28 countries to work together on making sure AI doesn't become a threat to humanity. But simultaneously, the U.S. has announced its own multilateral AI agreement focused on the military use of AI. And it also announced its own Global AI Safety Institute in Washington. So in light of this, what can and has the summit achieved? We'll explore the policy and the politics this week. And I have three guests here joining me in Chatham House today. We have Lucy Fisher, the Whitehall editor for the FT and the host of the FT's Political Fix podcast. Welcome, Lucy. Hi, Roxanne. Uh, next to me is Olivia O'Sullivan, the director of Chatham House's UK and the World Initiative. Hi there. Thanks for having me. And last but certainly not least, we have Alex Krasadomsky, a senior research associate with our Digital Society Initiative. Welcome, Alex. Hey, Roxanne. Let's do some scene setting first. Why the summit and why now? Alex, take us through the tech. We've heard a lot of doom-mongering and warnings on the risks of AI. And the U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris gave a speech in London this week, citing the threat to democracy as well as humanity. But you have a more hopeful view, don't you? Generally speaking, I do. But I think this is clearly a technology that will have enormous ramifications, both in the sort of near term and in the long term. And it is that long term that this summit is sort of focused on. Uh, by contrast, Kamala Harris yesterday when she was talking, she was talking about the, the, the challenges that might affect us maybe even today, or maybe they're already affecting us. Job disruption, changes to how much we can trust the things that we see on the internet. A lot of the kind of existing problems that we might see in the world sort of supercharged by this new technology. Uh, is it all doom and gloom? No, absolutely not. I'm slightly surprised to find uh, a, a, an ally, albeit maybe only a temporary one, in Elon Musk, who was sort of saying, well, there is probably a, a good amount of upside to come from this as well. Probably Mr. Musk and I disagree on, on exactly how we're going to get there. But clearly, this is a, a technology with a lot of opportunities as much as challenges. What sort of opportunities? So wherever you look in AI, uh, and th there are sort of classic examples here. We see that in healthcare, the ability to screen cancer much more quickly, for instance, is one that is trumpeted. But generally, a lot of the processes that we might deal with to take perhaps a more mundane example, if anyone spent any time on the phone with DWP or HMRC, the idea that perhaps we could supercharge that process by doing it through a really, really powerful chatbot is a really positive one. And DWP and HMRC are? Department of Work and Pensions, but, but any sort of local council or perhaps a government department, you know, two hours on hold and, and eventually you get through to somebody. Uh, that process could be made much better by, let's say, using a, a, a chatbot. And these chatbots are incredibly powerful. All across the spectrum, whether super mundane or, or right at the bleeding edge, this technology does have the power to sort of speed things up, make things more powerful, do things that otherwise in research terms or even just in process terms, we couldn't do 
up until th- this point. And I think that's something that we we should be excited about. The big question for me, uh, and I think for, for Chatham House more broadly, is who is steering this ship? Who is driving this technology forward? Are governments credible actors in shaping our sort of technology horizons going forward? I think if we look at the last 20 years of technology and also tech governance, there is a really big gap between the people making the tech and the people setting the rules. And I don't see that gap getting any smaller in the coming years. And this summit in particular is looking at the risks around frontier AI. We hear that phrase a lot, but what does that mean? So a frontier AI model, to, to, to sort of put it simply, is, uh, is the most powerful stuff. AI has been kicking around for, for, for donkey's years. In many ways, the, the deep blue chess program that beat Gary Kasparov many, many years ago is an example of an AI. And every sort of online service, whether it's Google Maps or Facebook or whatever, is, is to some extent using AI. Now, these technologies get more and less powerful, and there are a few labs in the world you know, Google and Microsoft and OpenAI, who are capable of the enormous infrastructure costs and, and financial costs needed to train the very latest AI. And this is what we might call a frontier AI. So we're at a critical moment in our history here when it comes to technological advancement. We see the UK sort of springing into action. Lucy, I want to bring you in here. This summit has been hailed as a legacy-making moment for the British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. But the Yanks seem to have stole some of his thunder with their own announcements. Are we seeing a competition between Silicon Valley and the Silicon Roundabout? <laughs> well, uh, in a word, uh, yes. You know, look, this is the coming technology of the future. It's unsurprising to me that it's a pretty competitive space for anyone to want to be in. I think the UK does have a credible claim to be a convening power on AI safety. You know, we've got a great higher education sector, brilliant universities working on this technology. We've got some fantastic companies, obviously DeepMind being premier uh, among them and a strong tech sector generally. But yes, I think, you know, Gina Raimondo uh, announcing that the US is launching its own institute to police artificial intelligence on the first day of the summit certainly stole some of Rishi Sunak's thunder. And I think it speaks to the competition in this area, but also, you know, look, different kind of blocks and different nations have slightly different ideas about how regulation should work. You know, the EU has published its AI Act legislation, which focuses much more on protecting human rights, data privacy, protecting citizens from surveillance. It essentially wants quite a hardline regulatory approach when it comes to protecting people from AI. The US wants a much softer touch regulatory approach. The UK is probably somewhere in the middle. I think there's still a lot to be learned about what China wants. That's one reason why Rishi Sunak has extended the invitation to China to attend the Bletchley Park two-day summit. But yeah, I think the UK might want to be the world leader in this sphere, but there will be others certainly wanting to encroach on that. And I mean, you talk about the legacy that the UK has when it comes to tech innovation and its standing in the world. And uh, Olivia, quite symbolically, the summit happened at Bletchley Park. It gets mentioned in every news story you can read online. Tell us a little bit about that symbolism and also, you know, this sort of meeting of old world innovation in the form of Bletchley Park and, you know, snazzy, stardusty tech gurus like Elon Musk. Yeah, I think it was a very interesting um, and quite a clever choice for the UK to decide to have the summit at Bletchley Park, although I know it posed quite a lot of logistical challenges for the officials trying to get all of the world leaders and tech companies into 
quite a small building outside of Milton Keynes. But Bletchley Park famously is the place where the UK ran its code-breaking or cipher-breaking operations in World War II and where prototypes of the computer and early thinking from Alan Turing about computer science was done. So it's kind of a symbol of a few things, right? One is the UK being a leader in tech innovation and having a history of that. But it's also a symbol of tech as a geopolitical asset. Because the UK had leading early computer scientists during a time of war, they were able to break German code. And some people think that shortened World War II by a couple of years. So it's a signal about the UK saying we want to show that we're a credible tech leader and we have a history of tech innovation. But it also communicates or emphasizes to us how much tech is a geopolitical issue, right? If you have leading capabilities in tech, you have the ability to compete with your adversaries in a more intensive, in a better way, you're more likely to be successful. And that's one of the kind of difficult things underlying the need to govern AI. I do think it's an achievement that the UK got the US, China and the EU all together agreeing to some similar wording on the idea that these risks are significant, they're significant enough to be international, and we should try to understand them better together. But underlying that, there's significant competition. There's geopolitical competition between the US and China to develop advanced AI because they see it as a source of power. So you need a few things to develop really advanced AI. You need massive computing power and you need specialized computer chips. And last year, the US blocked exports of specialized computer chips to China because it doesn't want China to develop an advanced AI industry. So it's a positive thing that we're trying to pull this really advanced technology that is going to confer significant geopolitical advantages on whoever develops the most sophisticated form of it first, that we're trying to develop some form of international governance or a sense of shared international risk here. But underlying all of that is quite significant competition between states to, you know, develop powerful AI models. What are the geopolitical competitive advantages of AI? Well, the difficult thing about AI, and one of the reasons that makes it very difficult to think about how it might be regulated both domestically and internationally is that it's developing very quickly. The trajectory of the technology has outpaced even what some experts expected a year ago. And it's general purpose. It can be applied to all kinds of things in simple terms. So it could potentially be used for the kinds of very worrying or serious military or security applications that sometimes get talked about when it comes to frontier AI. You know, could really powerful AI be used to synthesize new bioweapons? That's controversial. The UK government has been using that example. Some people think it could, some people think it couldn't. Could it be used to deploy really intensive cyber attacks that are way more sophisticated than the ones we've seen before? So it potentially could have all these rather worrying applications, but it, it also could have any number of beneficial applications, as Alex was saying at the beginning. It could improve our public services. It could help us predict and monitor climate change better. It could help us kind of make decisions in clearer and better ways as states. So I know that's kind of a vague answer, but it, it's tricky to say precisely because it's such a general purpose technology, it could confer so many advantages. Um, it's worth thinking about something like nuclear power. It's very different from AI. It's this really significant capability. We can use it for weapons and we can use it for civic beneficial ends to generate energy. And we have a global governance system for nuclear power. We monitor how states develop it and how they access it and we research it. 
And we do that as an international endeavor. So maybe eventually we might come up with a system like that for AI, although it will look very different because AI and nuclear aren't the same. It's an enormous capability and we should think of a way to govern it. Olivia's really neatly described there perhaps some of the security implications of AI, and that is certainly one aspect of it. But I think, you know, Rishi Sunak and, and, and generally the, the, the countries looking to sort of capture AI and be seen as AI leaders here are looking to capture economic advantages, social advantages, technological advantages. Yes, of course, military, defense, security advantages, and so on. So we have to sort of think of this as if the gamble on AI is the right one, and that this is a transformative revolutionary technology, the idea that it's going to be sort of transformational across all aspects of society, and therefore, you know, the UK is the place to be. The gamble on the future of AI is not just a sort of defense or military gamble, it's actually a sort of a whole society thing. This will be transformational for business, for society, the expectation is that the country that succeeds on AI will become a sort of a leader, a really attractive place to move to, to spend money on. This is more than just uh, hackers and cyber offensives. This is about a whole society transformation. I actually am, am more sceptical of the likelihood or plausibility of nations working together on the safety aspects. Um, you know, we know that Multiple nations are looking at the application of AI to weapons. You know, we're at a time of war in Europe, in the Middle East. It's absolutely terrifying when you look at all the ways in which AI boosts lethality of weapons and also, you know, in, empowers a lot of arms to sort of use autonomy. So you set an objective to, say, a swarm of drones and then press fire. And then you don't necessarily have control over how, you know, that weapon or that system achieves the goal that you've set it. It can, it can do things in, in unexpected ways, potentially. I'm not, you know, that confident we're going to see nations agreeing guidelines or principles that they will stick to on that front. I also think we've got to be realistic that the ways in which nations want to use technology also differs, you know, for China, for example, or authoritarian autocracies, you know, they will be looking to harness the powers of AI to, to use on or even against their citizens, you know, surveillance, the use of kind of facial recognition technologies and, and so forth. So I'm actually more confident that we will see collaboration between states on the positive benefits. And Olivia and Alex have spelt out some of those. You know, I think it can't be stressed enough, particularly for um, d developed nations with public services that are hugely expensive and getting more expensive, um, particularly when we have aging populations. You know, the power for AI to be transformative, you know, taking and doing some of those backroom administrative functions taking care of the bureaucracy and allowing um, people to deliver the frontline services, I think could, could be huge. And particularly when you think of healthcare spotting patterns, you know, speeding up the discovery of drugs or, or, or better understanding of, of, of the way that diseases work and how to counter them, I think could be revolutionary. So I think on those kind of areas, we, we could see more collaboration between countries. And also on some of the, the sort of the challenges that move outside the security sphere, like what happens to labor markets, you know, the transformative power of AI is going to lead to just millions of job losses across the world. To me, that seems one of the clear outcomes of AI. There's a lot we don't know about how it will use, how it will progress. We're in the foothills of this nascent technology, but I think it is going to change the nature of the jobs market. And again, that's something that countries can look to, to share information. I think we'll see more trials of things like universal basic income to try and work out how society will deal with that. And to Lucy's point, I, I totally agree with Lucy, and that is pretty absent from the UK's 
approach to this and, and, and not absent when we look at what's coming from the US. So Kamala Harris, when she was speaking, the, the executive order that President Biden released, they did talk about job losses. They did talk about, you know, big societal change. The focus of this summit, perhaps necessarily given the number of diverse viewpoints on AI that are in the room, it had to be high level, sure. But it is very much focused on these long term risks and not focused on those disruptions that Lucy's just outlined that are happening today. So I'm going to switch a little bit and talk about the politics because we promised we'd talk a little bit about the politics. And there's been a lot. There's been a lot of politics happening in the UK this week. On Tuesday, the opposition leader, Keir Starmer, was right here in Chatham House, just one floor below where we're sitting now, uh, looking and sounding very prime ministerial. The COVID inquiry is also ongoing, and it's not looking pretty for how the Tories handled the pandemic. I'm calling it a binfire of the vanities. Lucy, can you talk a little bit about what's been going on and why, with so much politics to choose from, Rishi Sunak has planted his flag on planet AI? Well, look, I think you're you're absolutely right. There's a lot going on, uh, and some of it does link to foreign policy. You know, you talk about Keir Starmer's speech setting out his justification for his approach to the conflict in Israel and Gaza. You know, that has led to deep divisions in his party. And his speech, his attempt to explain his thinking, hasn't stemmed the flow of Labour front benches publicly diverging from the Labour Party's official line. And one interesting development yesterday was I was speaking to Tory insiders, government officials, who were starting to attack Starmer over the matter. The, the Conservatives this week, Rishi Sunak, he sacked a ministerial aide who disagreed publicly with his policy calling for a ceasefire. The point now that conservative figures are trying to make is that Rishi Sunak has a grip on his party. He can show leadership. Keir Starmer, by contrast, can't even persuade his own team to agree with his way of thinking on this conflict. So it's becoming political. The gloves are off now. It's becoming a bit of a dividing line between the parties, how they're dealing with this, which is something you, you don't often necessarily see with foreign policy. Again, Roxanne, you mentioned the COVID inquiry, which lots of eye-catching headlines from that, not least the uh, toxic, violent, aggressive expletives used by Dominic Cummings. But again, that speaks to other dysfunction systemically in, in government, the way the cabinet office is set up, the way Downing Street works. So yeah, good question. Why is Rishi Sunak focusing on AI regulation at a time when there's so much going on? Look, he's trailing Labour by 20 points on average in the polls. He will in part be thinking about his legacy, as you pointed out at the top of the podcast. Interesting to date, some of his main achievements have been things he's achieved with international partners, whether it's the AUKUS submarine program, agreeing the EU wins a framework with Brussels, again, negotiating with the EU, Britain's re-entry into the Horizon Science program. Things are a lot tougher on the home front. And we just briefly touched on, you know, the way that public services are struggling. Well, boosting them costs money. And this is a time of incredibly tight public finances. There isn't a lot of money to go around. Things are going to get tougher because, you know, we're pretty exposed in the UK with our long term debt to rolling over into highest interest rates, servicing public debt is going to get more expensive. So in one sense, it's not surprising that, you know, Rishi Sunak doesn't have a lot of levers to pull, doesn't have money to spend on lots of domestic challenges. So acting the statesman, hobnobbing with world leaders is something you know he can do to try and burnish his image, that of his party, and have something else he can talk about when it comes to the general election as a potential achievement. Olivia, will this summit even matter, considering we all expect the Tories to be booted out of government next year? 
Will the summit be Rishi Sunak's lasting legacy? It's a good question. And I think, you know, I agree with you that it's worth asking sort of why focus on this right now. And as Lucy says, I think often prime ministers who are struggling a bit on the home front sometimes look to establish a bit of a foreign policy legacy. This is an important issue. We should be thinking long term about how we can govern these risks and govern this really powerful technology internationally in some way. And I think there's a bit of a risk that the way this has been framed and the way the summit has been done makes it look like very associated with Rishi Sunak. It becomes his political project. So the question worth asking is if what we expect happens does happen and Labour win the election, what would their take on this issue be? And would Keir Starmer himself be as personally interested or as animated by the issue? The Labour Party have shown some interest in AI, but more along the lines of the types of things that Alex and Lucy have been talking about as a way of kind of accelerating and improving public services and maybe a little bit less on the foreign policy front. So I think the kind of question to ask or the thing to look out for is, will they sort of take up this mantle if they come into government and will they continue to make the UK a leading voice in governance of this technology internationally? Or will they, as they have been in other areas, be quite a bit more focused on kind of kitchen table domestic policy issues and, and not really see it as a, as a kind of international governance issue at all or something that they particularly want to lead on internationally? Lucy, Rishi Sunak went to Stanford. He's married to an IT heiress. Do we think this is a, a career step for him to move back to San Francisco? Well, that's certainly the suspicion, even of his friends. You know, I was talking to a senior conservative figure yesterday who was a little cynical uh, about the AI summit and said, you know, how convenient months or possibly a year before Rishi Sunak looks like he could be heading out of office. This is the world's best forum for, for a job interview in a major tech company. That is quite cynical. Look, I think he does have a genuine interest in this. He's spoken a lot about wanting to boost Britain's status as a science and maths and research superpower. He wants children to learn maths to 18 as a mandatory part of the curriculum. So I can believe that he has a real interest in AI. But yeah, look, you know, he's a very young man. He's done the finance career. He's certainly not wanting for cash worth about 730 million, largely in thanks to his wife's fortune. But he will want something to do. And I can definitely see it being an attractive option for him and his family to move back to California and for him to work in this sphere if the Conservative Party do head out of government and uh, head for a spell in opposition next year. So I guess we'll find out in the next year what Rishi Sunak's next step is. But to wrap this up, I want to ask Alex, is the Bletchley Declaration a crowning achievement for post-Brexit UK as it redefines its role in the world? Or is it too light to bite? Uh, the Bletchley Declaration is, is an important start, but I think let's see what comes next. We know that we're getting back together again in six months in Korea. We're getting back together again in France in a year's time. We know that there are processes ongoing in the US. There are processes going on at a G7 level. So look, I think this is it is important, as Olivia has said, that we've got together a really quite diverse group of actors here and, and got them to sign on the dotted line, at least sign something. I think the, the big question now is what comes next. And what comes next? Uh, time will only tell. Uh, we'll have to wrap that up for now. Uh, that's the show. A big thank you to my guest, Lucy Fisher. Thank you. Thanks, Roxanne. Olivia Sullivan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Alex Krasadomsky. Thanks, Roxanne. Do follow them all on Twitter. We'll have the links in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of Chatham House's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms, as well as through our social media channels. So do like, follow, and subscribe. And please do leave us a review. 
To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we would love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all of our programs, including our Digital Society Initiative and our UK in the World program. You'll also find the World Today magazine. The current issue is on AI, and you can read Alex Krasadomsky on the need for public AI in the latest edition. Next week, Bronwyn Maddox will be back in the studio, but until then, it's goodbye from me. Roxanne Escobales, thank you for listening. Hold up. 